Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. To remain standing in honor of reading God's Word this morning, we have a short passage from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the living word who is Jesus, who we worship and magnify. We thank you for your written, written word that points us to him. We pray that your spirit would speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine as you're being seated that you are out in your yard, maybe working on the grass, getting the pre-emergent down or, you know, whatever it is, preparing for the spring. How many of you all have already worked on your grass? All right. A couple of you. There we go. Uh, So you're out there, whatever it is that you're doing, maybe just hanging out. And as you look up into the sky, you begin to see cats parachuting down. Now that sounds silly to the kids in the room. And yet, This is actually something that really happened in 1955 in the island of Bernia, which is now part of uh, Malaysia. There was a large amount of parachuting cats. And so let me tell you the story behind that. The island had an outbreak of malaria. And so in fact, in the country of Bernia, nine out of 10 people were infected with malaria. And so because of this, the World Health Organization came up with a plan to get rid of malaria. They knew that mosquitoes were spreading malaria. And so they sprayed large amounts of pesticides like a DDT into the area. Well, not only did the pesticide kill the mosquitoes, it also killed and poisoned the houseflies. And so there were piles of housefly carcasses all over the island, which the local gecko lizards then consumed in large quantities. Literally, it was dead food for them just to enjoy. And then they got sick with the pesticides. And so these normally fast lizards were slowed down and sick. So that made them easy prey for the cats on the island who literally could have their fill of these slow moving and dying lizards. And then because of that, the cats, as they were digesting the lizards, they began to get sick and eventually die off. And now the rats that had been fed on by the cats were able to literally overtake the island and once again, massively spread disease. So, the World Health Organization was in a pickle, right? The, the plan 
didn't work as they thought. And so their ultimate strategy was Felix X Machina drop parachuting cats down onto the island to eat the rats and then hopefully restore the order that had been uh, destroyed, right? So, so that's the context for these, these parachuting cats. And I love that story. I think it's hilarious just in general of all of the potential outcomes. But I think it really is a picture of humanity holistically as we're presented in Scripture. Uh, we are those who are limited. We're described from the beginning as being limited in various ways, which causes us, in the best way, to be dependent on God. And that's what we should see rightly. When we acknowledge our limitations, there's certain things we don't see. There's certain details we don't have. There's certain elements that are just outside of our knowledge. And so we depend on an omniscient God with all knowledge who is able then to provide us with the direction that that we can't provide for ourselves. And this is how God designs shalom, right? This, this flourishing, this wholeness in Genesis in the garden. God has designed all of these elements. I mean, you think about the, the chain of life at some level, all of these things that the people in Bernia discovered, but all the ways things work together, all that's necessary for life to exist. And God arranges all of that, but not only does he do that, he puts it together in a certain way so that it all coexists peacefully. And this is again this shalom, this flourishing, this wholeness where everything comes together. And so we've looked at this picture of how this plays out in the book of Genesis relationally. So there is this this peace, this fullness in the relationship that humanity has with God. The relationship that they have with others, which begins simply with the man and his wife, and the peace with creation itself, so the rest of the created order, the earth, and then what we're going to dive into this morning and actually kind of consider for a couple weeks is the relationship of shalom within ourself, and and we'll think about that. Um, Now, because all of this is put together by God, it is dependent on him. And God is the giver of life. Everything else, every other aspect of creation does not have life in itself. It is dependent on God. God is the unlimited giver of life. And that continues today, that God is is filling everything with life and enabling things to work and to move forward. And the enemy who enters the scene in Genesis uh, chapter 2, we see, or rather Genesis chapter 3, we see he has the goal of disconnecting humanity from God. And if you have a cell phone, you know that that battery can be disconnected for a while, but eventually what happens? It's going to die, right? And that's how it is. We we have this need to be connected with God in order to, to have life from him. And so the enemy who, because of his role in all of this, he cannot touch humanity. He cannot harm humanity. But he is able to deceive humanity to lead us in a way that causes us to be disconnected from God, the giver of life. And, and this is his part. The enemy's purpose is destruction. 
and his plan is disconnected. If you just imagine the outlet and pulling the plug out of it, that's, that's how the enemy seeks to bring this destruction. And it's still today how he seeks to bring destruction to our own lives and to the lives of the people around us. He does this first by disconnecting who we are from whose we are. Now, God is predominantly in Genesis a father. And just as we sang, I'm a child of God, the relationship of humanity to God is that of his children. We're, We're called to depend on him. And as a good father, he gives rules. And you know, if you're a parent, you have to have rules. There have to be restrictions. Otherwise, kids will destroy themselves and your house and everything else. And so as a good father... He provides a particular restriction, which, which really is an expression of his love. But the enemy takes the word of God that if you eat this one fruit, you will die. And he opposes it. He gives a, exactly the opposite statement. He says, no, you won't actually die. Instead, if you eat it, you will be like God, right? And that's the lie. That's the deception. And I want us to think about the way that this actually plays out. In all of the most important ways, they already were like God. They were created in his image. They had his love. They were his children. And they were like God in the ultimate ways. And so what they were tempted to do was to take something that was already theirs to receive. They, they were led to try to take this, this God-likeness in a way that, that ultimately they already had. Yet, in an unhealthy way, they were, they were being tempted and deceived to cross a line that couldn't be crossed. So while humanity was made in the image of God, and they have this relationship of children to a father, there also is a line between every aspect of creation that separates it from the creator. And this includes humanity. And so this, this line cannot be crossed. And yet that's exactly what the enemy is, is calling them to do. He's saying, you can ultimately take God's place in your own life. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. And what he's saying here is you can be the definer of good and evil. And think about how we all do this in various ways. We know what God says. And yet there's all kinds of ways where we all decide, well, this is an exception or, or this, this particular situation doesn't quite fit. And we can kind of explain that away. And what we are doing is following the same lie of the enemy that we can determine good and evil for ourselves. We don't have to depend on God or live in accountability ultimately to him as, the, as, as he created us to do. And so this is, this is ultimately reducing us down in, in, to, to those who are, who are incapable of bearing the weight of job, of, of God's job description and calling us to try to, to play this role in our life. And, and again, it's, it's disconnecting us from the place of trusting God, receiving from him, and depending on him. And so, therefore, it leads to our death. Secondly, we see not only does he lie to disconnect who we are from whose we are, but secondly, disconnecting our desires from God's design. 
And so what the serpent does in this story is he leads and directs Eve to focus simply on her appetites, to focus simply on the desires that she has. And so she sees this fruit. She sees it's good for food. It's delightful to look at. It's desirable for obtaining wisdom. And these are all God-given desires. The desires that Eve has within her body uh, and that she sees in this fruit are given by God. Think about it. If you didn't get hungry and you never had that appetite to eat food, what would happen eventually? You would starve, right? You know that, that often older people get into very poor health and, and the final thing that happens is they lose their appetite and that is something that leads to death. And so the appetite to eat food is God-given and is necessary for survival. Now, there are other appetites that God gives us that are necessary for the call that he gives to be fruitful and multiply. So this command that God give, had given humanity came along with, with appetites and desires that would drive that process forward, that bring about survival and flourishing of his creation. And so these are, these are good desires that all of us have, but what the enemy says is that we can take without giving. We have this way of life, which is a way of receiving from God and giving out of the abilities that he's given us. And that's, that's the way that everything works. That's where there's flourishing and wholeness. And yet what the enemy says is we can simply take for ourselves. And this is reducing us down to simply desires, to simply our appetites, that you can meet your own needs in this way. And this is what we see in verse six. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, this is disconnecting the good desires, right, that all of us have, the appetites that all of us have from the larger context of God's design. And we ultimately see this in various ways where we we can focus simply on the reward at one level without the work. Because for flourishing for ourselves, for the people around us, for creation around us, all of this, this larger infrastructure of God design, what does it require of us? That we give, right? That we work, that we contribute, that we participate in the way God has called us to do. And that's our process. Now we also receive in, in various ways from other people and from God. But what the enemy tells us is you don't have to give. You can just take you can just have the reward without the contribution. And, and there's, there's all kinds of ways I see this play out. But the example that I think of and the way that this leads to our destruction most clearly is one that I've shared many times. If you've been here, part of, of Fairview for a while, is my son. Uh, several Easter's ago, how old, are, how old were you, Judson? You remember 11? No, were you then? Okay, seven or eight. Uh, and we heard through the monitor, these miserable moaning sounds, like just agonizing. And we went into his room, and he had gotten his Easter basket, 
And there were all of these tinfoil wrappers like littered all around his room. And he was laying in the floor, holding his stomach, just rolling around, just moaning in, in agony. Right. And and so I think about all kinds of situations in my own life. I think about that, about how I st- it's that's what a kid does. But there's all kinds of grown up ways that I do that. And because I I allow the enemy to separate my desires, just the appetites from this larger context of God's design and, and how things are working. And, and anytime we are reduced down to just wanters, just desirers, right? That, that's going to lead us inherently to destruction. This is what Paul writes about as the way of the flesh. In Romans 8, 6, he says, now the mindset of the flesh is death. This is the way that, that most people think. This is the way that when we just follow our appetites, it's the way of the flesh and it inevitably leads to destruction and death. He writes in Ephesians 2 about living according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of the flesh. And, and what he's describing and what we see entering the scene here in Genesis is the divided self. If you think about that, before this, humanity was whole completely as we depended on God, received from him, and then gave out of that. And what the enemy does by focusing in simply on our desires in a way that's disconnected, right in a larger way from who we are, it leads to this place where we actually are self-destructive. So the enemy doesn't have to lift a finger. We destroy ourselves. And this is the opposite of shalom with ourselves. This is the opposite of this fullness that God designed us for. Instead, we ultimately, and you've heard the phrase, are our own worst enemies in, in various ways because the enemy hijacks these desires, these good desires that God has give, given and points them in a way that leads to our destruction. And again, this is, this is the opposite of this shalom with ourselves. And now there is, Paul writes about the difference between living by the flesh and living by the, the spirit. These are these two categories. And one is just following the desires, right, in this way. And the other is ultimately following God's will and his bigger picture and design where everything works holistically as he intended. Uh, third and finally, we see that the enemy disconnects, lies to us by disconnecting our short-term passions from God's long-term purposes. Now, in the beginning, was God's desire for humanity to actually keep from them? No, he was not withholding something good. That's the way that the enemy worked. He worked through this process, and, and he did not say up front that God is not good. Right? That, would, that would be absurd. And yet, ultimately, he led along a process. Think about this. By focusing simply on her desires in an immediate way, which are good, and then pointing to the fact that God had withheld something good that she desired. And therefore, if a good desire that, she, that God gave her is being withheld in some way, what conclusion does that lead her to? God is not good, right? It's, it's a total lie, but it's this process of deception. But we all think, how often have we said, well, I have this desire, and if for one reason or another, 
it's withheld in this moment, then somehow, right, God's not good or, or some aspect of this is, is not working the way that it should. And, and that's, again, that's this process of deception that leads us to question the goodness of God. But in truth, God had a purpose. His purpose was not simply to satisfy their appetites, but to develop them in character, right? To, to teach them discipline. And, and this is something that God intends. We think about the, the passage, God disciplines those he loves. And, and we think about that often kind of as a punishment, but God, what God does is he, he also teaches discipline to those he loves. And, and think about, again, my kids. I have to teach them discipline in various ways so they don't roll around the floor, you know, with their Easter candy. There's, there's processes that are loving design. And God has this longer-term perspective. He, he's looking out beyond the short-term focus that we have. And he, he sees, beginning in the garden, the call to fast from a particular tree as a process that leads them to become people of character and maturity who he can entrust ultimately with these greater callings in their life. And this is the same process that we see playing out in the life of Jesus. And so Jesus comes on the scene. And we see that in preparation for his ministry, he is called to fast for 40 days. By the way, the season of Lent right now that we're in, where Christians all over the world have fasted from something in some various way. This is, this is in part taken from this 40-day fast of Jesus as he prepares for the ministry uh, that God had for him. And so we read in Matthew 4, 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he's doing the same thing that he did with Eve. He comes once again with, with food, with a temptation of eating. And he tells her, or he tells Jesus, in essence, to use the power God has given you to take food rather than receiving ultimately from God. Jesus responds, unlike Eve, uh, who does allow him to make her appetites and desires paramount, uh, and instead, he says, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. So this is about Israel in the wilderness. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This was the purpose God had in Israel Going hungry, think about this, going without things that they naturally would have depended on. And the purpose was to teach and to instruct them that life doesn't come from bread. And this could be representative of anything. There's, there's no aspect of creation that can give you life. Instead, life itself comes from who? God. And you are receiving his instruction. You're receiving his love that God himself is the giver of life and not any of these objects that you're trusting in. And I wonder in your life, if you've been through a season where there was something that was withheld from you, you went through a time of, of hungering in some way, and through that, God was disciplining you and teaching you to not depend on anything in this world, right? To show you there's nothing in this world 
that can actually give you what you need. And so he, as an expression of love, withholds those elements, teaching you to depend on him and to, to recognize that dependence on God and the discipline that he desires for you is better than the natural desires that you have. Discipline and dependence is greater than desires. And this is a lesson, again, that we don't learn intellectually. We have to learn this in our bodies, right, through these seasons of withholding in various ways. And this is what is, is taking place in the life of Jesus. You see, the reason why Israel needed to have this withholding in this way is because God's plan to begin with, beginning with uh, Abraham, was that the people of God would not be like the rest of the nations because they would be a blessing. That was what was to mark the people of God, that God would bless them, that they would then go and be a blessing to all nations. They were to be givers that stood out from a world filled with takers. In order to do this, they had to go through this period in the wilderness of simply receiving from God. They were forced to, right, with the manna. They had no option in the desert. But in this process, they learned to receive from God rather than taking for themselves. And this was preparing them, again, for this calling. And we see the same in the life of Jesus. Jesus was called, ultimately, to be a giver. You think about his ministry. He healed people. He taught people. He cared for people. He gave in all of these ways. But it was through this time of preparation, right, that, again, just like Israel, who went through a fast in the wilderness, that brought him to this point of receiving. And you see throughout his ministry, Jesus is constantly leaving the work and going to do what? To pray. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Right? He spends time praying and receiving from God. He recognizes that Life doesn't come from anything in this world, but from God himself. And so this fasting and this praying, which is, again, it's not just this one time. It's a regular part of Jesus' ministry is necessary to maintain this mentality. And it's necessary for us, right? Times of fasting are some of the most powerful experiences of man. First, how dependent we are on things of this world. But then ultimately to realize that that God provides us with with something better than what we would choose, right? We hunger in some ways so that we will be fed by God with something better than what we would have chosen on our own. Do we see that? And as a loving father, he gives us what's better than what we would naturally choose out of our appetites. And that equips us to give to others. And and this is this is where John 4, 31 through 34, Jesus, in the midst of his ministry... The disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Right? That's the only, from a fleshly standpoint, the only answer to this question is somehow somebody sneaked him a taco, right? There was something that he got. But Jesus responds, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see, he really lives the principle that he responded to the enemy. 
that he really doesn't live by bread alone. He really lives by the word. He really lives by the provision of his father. And this equips him to give. Ultimately, it equips him for another garden where we saw the failure in the first garden of Eden. We find Jesus in another garden of Gethsemane. And he is experiencing the height of this battle because he still has a body. He still has appetites, just like us. The book of Hebrews tells us like the same temptations, the same desires, the same appetites that you have, Jesus had. This wasn't like a game. And in the midst of that, he had a natural desire not to die. He says, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And that's the expression of these natural appetites, these natural desires that we all have of the flesh. And yet he submits and, and, and subordinates them to the spirit. He says, nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours be done. He says, that's the food. My food is to do the will of my father, even at the expense of my own life. And this is the conquering of the enemy. This is the overcoming of the enemy's life where Adam and Eve failed, where all of us failed. Jesus overcame with the truth. He did not give in to the deceptions and the desires of the flesh, but he was faithful to his father and he died on the cross for us. He poured out his own blood that he might pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven and given new life. He he does this ultimately at the expense of his own body. His body is broken. His blood is shed. And he foreshadows this, the cross, with a meal. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus gathers his disciples. He gathers the people who he had loved and cared for and taught. And he he takes bread, which is part of a Passover Seder. And he takes a cup. And he uses the same words that we find in the garden in Genesis. Take and eat. Just as those words, to take and eat, had brought death into the world. Now through Jesus, those very words would bring life out of death. Would bring freedom from the curse of sin and death. And this is what Jesus was coming for. He was coming to bring freedom. Again, the the Passover was a reminder of what event? The Exodus. When God freed his people from what? slavery, right? And this is what Jesus is coming to do. And and it's important that we see that yes, Jesus purchases our forgiveness on the cross, but he also purchases our freedom. What he does is actually enable us to be free from all of the enslavement to our desires and to sin in all of these ways. Titus 2.11, Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God teaches us to deny our 
desires and our appetites. How? How do we do it? Through the cross. Take up your cross every day. Die to yourself. Die to the control of those appetites so that you can experience this this freedom, right, that Jesus provides for you through his grace. And, And this is for us where we consider where are we taking, right? Where in our life are we taking? And, and where are we trying to draw life from some aspect of creation? Uh, one of the ways that God demonstrates his relationship with humanity as father is by giving them a name. And this is a role. Any of you parents in the room went through the process of naming your children. Was that an easy process for you? No, <laughs> right? It's belabored. You're all, you know, talking about all the possible names, whatever they are. And it's important, right? Because you're like giving this kid a name and they're going to have that. And uh, we had a, a, a deacon in the church I served, the first church I served before we got married, Jill and I got married in Raleigh. And his name was Harold. And Harold was a character. He never had less than six chains on. I mean, he was... A, a character and he had no lack of self-confidence and so he knew that he was going to have a, a, a son he was confident in it they didn't actually go to the doctor about it but and so he was going to give his his son what name Harold right obviously well when the baby came out it was a girl and the obvious choice for us would be to Go back to the drawing board, right? Not Harold. He named his baby girl Haroline. No lie. Haroline was this lady's name. And that is unfortunate, right? That naming. <laughs> you go wrong. But there's a way in which that's tied to, to our identity. And, and God names humanity. He, he has this relationship with us. And, and he is the one who feeds us. He's the one who fathers us. He's the one who provides for us. And we have to constantly be reminded of this, that God provides our food, that God feeds us, and, and we can trust him to do that in the midst of temptation. And ultimately, he feeds us through his son. Ultimately, man does not live by bread alone, but every mouth that comes from the word of God, well, the word became flesh. And we read in John chapter six, so Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the man can come on up, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up. On the last day, this is this resurrection day to come. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And so as we celebrate communion, we are being fed by our Father through true food. And what is that food? It's the body and the blood of Jesus. That's the food that actually gives us life. And every other food that you've ever eaten 
is simply a picture of the true food in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we receive from the Father this meal of the body and the blood of Jesus, the goal is that we would realize that nothing else satisfies And one day when Jesus actually returns in person, which Paul writes about, we'll go, man, that's what I wanted all along. Every desire that I followed that led to some dumb decision, rolling around the floor, whatever that was, all of those were empty. They ultimately were meant to lead me to Jesus, that Jesus is all that I I really need, that all that I really desire. And so that's the calling, is that we would be filled with the true food of the body and blood of Jesus in a way that enables us to go out into the world not to take, but to give. To give Jesus to others through our lives. And so just as we prepare, just a moment to consider where in our lives may we be taking from some aspect of creation, trying to fill our desires through sinful passions or or any way that we're really depending on the things of this world. And where we see that, we repent. We turn away from that. And say, God, forgive me. And we receive, right, what we're actually looking for through Jesus. And so I invite you just to take a moment, just consider that and prepare the elements. If you don't have the elements, just raise your hand. Our deacons will bring them to you as they come around. Father, we thank you for the body and blood of Jesus. We thank you that he offers us forgiveness for all of our sins, that when we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that he also gives us freedom that through Christ in us, we have the grace to say no to ungodliness and temptations and desires so that we could live in the freedom and the fullness that you designed for us as your children. We pray now that even in this taking of the bread and the cup, that we would experience the grace of Jesus in a real way. It's in his name we pray, amen. So on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body 
which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ broken for you. And in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ shed for you. Then we read that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'd invite you to do that, to stand with me. We're gonna be in the prayer room. The prayer room will be open. If there's anything you need prayer for or anything going on you'd like to talk about, we'd love to receive you there. I'm gonna invite us to join together in this confession of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ. We offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.